You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a bonus episode of the Projection Booth Podcast. This is an interview with Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph, the authors of A Thousand Cuts, the bizarre underground world of collectors and dealers who saved the movies. The book is available now via the University of Mississippi Press, and I highly recommend it. Coming into this, I really had uh, just a very surfacy knowledge of film collecting, and Bartok and Joseph go into some great detail, great depth, talking to some of the collectors who have been around for years doing this stuff, and talking about the kind of the dying art of film and film collecting. Highly recommend this. Please be sure to pick up the book, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Renovations here at the uh, at the Egyptian, so there's all sorts of work going on in the background, Mike. <laughs> Sorry, it was noisy. Well, I am uh, very excited to talk to you about A Thousand Cuts. I found it to be an absolutely fascinating book and something that I uh, desperately didn't know was missing from my library, but as I'm reading it, I'm just like, wow, this is teaching me a whole lot of stuff that I never knew that I needed to know before. We're really glad to hear that. Certainly over the past 10 years, We've seen the film collector subculture in rapid decline. It pretty much is at this point. Mostly, I think, because older collectors get too old to lift 35mm film, let alone 70. And the younger collectors, the few that are left, which aren't many, but there's some, but they want, you know, The Matrix. That's their old movie that they grew up with. They want, you know, something from the 80s or 90s, Ghostbusters. They don't care about the Maltese Falcon or Casablanca, Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind. That generation is pretty much over, I think, at this point. And when I came to work with the Cinematech in the early 90s, I, I got to meet a bunch of these collectors who would, who would, you know, freely loan their prints. And I, I quickly discovered that there was this lingering sense of fear and paranoia among them that I'd never really seen in, in other collecting subcultures. I mean, there's obsession, yes. You know, I'm, a, I'm a record collector and I collect movie posters, so I know about that. But the sense of paranoia and and not wanting to let people know what films were in your collection, and then I found out that it really dated from the early 70s when the FBI and the Justice Department was harassing and targeting film collectors and film dealers, and the fact that it was still lingering in the air 20 years later and even to this day. You know, it, it is still lingering to this day. There are some collectors who will not say what they have and they will not cooperate with the studios. The particular collector I'm thinking of now who has a rare thing that Warner Brothers, I'm sure, would love to have, but he's convinced Warner Brothers would steal his movie and he won't own it to them, period. And Jeff, of course, has, has uh, ample reason <laughs> to be paranoid because all of the dealers that were targeted by the Justice Department in the early 70s, he was the only one at the age of, what was it, 22, that actually did jail time. He did two months in a, a federal prison. Yeah, you point out rather early on in the book that this is one of the few hobbies or collections where you can get arrested by the federal government for it. And I never really put that together in my head. I don't know why that was. Well, mind you, it's been many years since anyone has been busted by anybody for this sort of thing. Probably a good 20 some odd years. But the paranoia still is there. You know, you're just a guy living with your, at your house with some film in the house and the FBI comes to the door and takes your film, that's not something you're going to forget or forgive too easily. I, I interviewed James Boris, who was the head of the, the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America's anti-piracy unit, around this period, and, and he described it uh, perfectly. He said it was a frantic period where there really was not any communication between the studios and the Justice Department and the FBI on one side and the film collectors and film dealers on the other side. So there was just tremendous fear and misunderstanding. Ironically, just a few years later, the studios would start selling VHS and Betamax tapes by the hundreds of thousands to that exact same audience, and, and then, of course, DVDs, Blu-rays, and now streaming. So it's almost impossible for an audience who's grown up in the last 15 or 20 years to understand what it was like back then 
for that baby boom generation when access to films was so limited. The only way to see a movie was if it happened to be on first run or came around in a rare revival, you know, Frankenstein or Gone with the Wind every few years, if it played on a million-dollar movie on TV, or if you owned a print of it. That was it. It was the only way you could see one of your favorite movies, which is what led these, you know, collectors to go out and buy their own prints, by hook or by crook. And, and a lot of the prints were obtained illegally. I mean, we don't hide that in, in the book. There was a gray market slash black market where a lot of prints would grow legs and, and walk off the studio shelves. I mean, we heard stories about people who would go into the studio archive and, and literally slip 20 or 40 bucks to one of the guys that worked there to look the other way while they grabbed a print and, and walked out the back door. So, so that kind of stuff happened all the time. So the studios, you know, had a reason to be upset about that because a lot of things were falling through the cracks. Jeff, you could also talk about film salvage and, and how that... Well, I mean, most of the film that we got over the years, I think over 100,000 prints went through my hands probably in the time we were in business. I'd say 90% of the stuff came from junks of one sort or another. The studios or the TV stations or whatever would throw away their film. They would junk the film. I mean, literally put it in the trash can in some cases. The way I would look at it, the way a lot of people look at it, is once in the trash can, it's kind of fair game. And uh, we got a lot of, I think 90% of the film we got was eventually from a salvage operation of one sort or another. Joe Dante, when we interviewed him, talked about, um, when he first came out to Hollywood in the early 1970s, and he, was, he was part of a very specific East Coast collector subculture. Um, he came out here, and, and uh, Technicolor was just shutting down its dye transfer operations that, that made Ivy Tech prints in late 1974, early 1975, and he remembers seeing dozens beautiful vintage dye transfer prints stacked up in the dumpsters outside of Technicolor, and they were all going to be jumped. You know, he said he so desperately wanted to take them, but he couldn't, you know, because they were, they were behind a fence protected by security, and he said that was his introduction into how Hollywood cares about its own history. And to be clear, that hasn't changed much. I mean, I was at a film lab that closed down about six months ago. They closed down about a year ago. But I happened to be driving by about six months ago, and I saw people there throwing film into the dumpster. They were going through the, the lab that was left and just throwing it all away rather than calling the studios or the academy or anybody. They were just tossing the stuff. It still happens. So what was kind of the impetus for you guys to finally say, we need to preserve this in print and sit down and write this book? I've been thinking about it for a long time, either doing a documentary or a book, probably for decades, because I had what happened to me happen, and it was a story that nobody really knew much anymore. In fact, and then it became thinking about all these film busts in general nobody really knew about at all. And then talking to Dennis about it, we kind of realized that this whole subculture is dying, more or less. I mean, it's taking a while to do it, but it is dying. And that, I think, became the impetus for the book that it became. The original was going to be more about just me and what happened to me, and we kind of expanded it to what it became. It's really sad, but, but a number of the collectors and dealers that we interviewed uh, within the past five years for the book have passed away. Yeah, Evan H. Foreman, who is the subject of the first chapter, Ken Kramer, who was um, at one point Jeff's partner in the very early 70s, and they were friends and rivals for many years. He just passed away a few months ago. He was one of the best-known collectors in the field. Bob DiPietro, who was the first film dealer, poster dealer that I ever met in the 1980s in New York City. So there have been tremendous losses in the collecting. Journey. On the other hand, Al Beardsley died. And, uh, <laughs> and Al Beardsley, you know, who was one of the most notorious figures in that world, um, who was busted. Um, he's the subject of the lockdown chapter and is one of the two men who was eventually responsible for putting O.J. Simpson behind bars um, after he had stopped being a, a film dealer. But we met, you know, we interviewed Al twice, both times in the hospital where he was semi-paralyzed. Um, he was remarkably honest with us. And I think he knew that, you know, this was his probably last best chance to tell his story. And he was incredibly open and direct with us about the scams that he used to pull. He was quite proud of them, actually, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the most... Brazen and amazing, which we talk about in the book, is how he, um, there was a 70 millimeter print of Lawrence of Arabia that was, this is a, this is an infamous story in the collecting subculture. It was, it was playing at the, with the Fairfax Theater on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday morning, and he, um, he had sold the print to a collector. It was not, it was not his. The print belonged to the studio. And 
he hired a delivery truck to go to the theater and say, I'm here to get the credit of Lawrence. And they thought it was from Columbia Pictures. And they gave it to him. And they gave him the credit, and the delivery truck drove it to Federal Express, and he FedExed it to the, the guy that bought it, and they, ne- they never knew where it went. It just <laughs> vanished. And I was like, that's like something out of the sting. Like Henry Gondorf would carry hey, off a scam like that. Yeah, that was Al, though. And I don't, was, remember, was, I don't remember if he made the book or not, but people kind of knew what Al did. And there was a note on the platter at the Fairfax to Al, basically, leave this alone, we know you're around. I don't think it was Lawrence, it was another movie he was looking yeah. after. But they left a note, actually, for Al, because they knew he was something to this kind of stuff. Yeah, and it was, it was really bittersweet and heart-wrenching to interview Al, because he kept asking repeatedly, how will I be portrayed in the book? And I said as honestly as I can. And I think I think we did that. I think it shows his his flaws, but I think it also shows, you know, his, his passion for the movies and his passion for for a great con, a great scam. And he was a con artist. He was totally. He was one of not as you say a best con artist. No, he's actually a pretty poor con artist. He was quite a well, he was drunk a lot of the time too. So yeah. you know, you only be so good a con artist when you're drunk. I think. Yeah. So it was really out of a desire to to interview the collectors and dealers while they were still around to share their stories. Uh, before this subculture um, vanishes completely, and it, and it it has now been disappearing so fast, it's really accelerated um, that a lot of the major players are are already gone. Well, yeah, it seems like such a race against time between people getting older. It seems like the market has kind of dropped out of film prints with a, uh, with a lot of this stuff, and then just the uh, the idea that the film prints themselves. Wanted to kind of destroy themselves. Well, the thing is, I mean, okay, so a Technicolor print of a classic movie, there's never going to be another one. So however many prints exist today of, say, Gone with the Wind or Wizard of Oz and Technicolor, that's all they'll ever be. So there is a limited number of them. Then there's a limited number of those that are in really good condition, that don't have a vinegar issue, that, you know, are runnable, that aren't nitrate, for example. And now you've got a really small universe of prints. But you also have a very small universe of collectors who want to buy such prints. As they get older and die off, there's less and less people who want the stuff. So consequently, the prices have, except for a few incredibly rare things, have mostly plummeted to like a quarter of what they were. I mean, a $5,000 movie is selling for $1,000 now, $2,000. Yeah, I, for example, if you still had an original Ivy Tech print of Hitchcock's Vertigo, you could still get very good money. You get ten grand for it. Yes, you could. Yeah, you could get ten thousand dollars, and I would say, you know, that's probably the outside. That said, somebody just tried right. to sell a Technicolor North by Northwest for seven thousand, and they had no takers. And, I, and back in the day, I would have easily sold that for seven grand. The market's just not there. Vertigo, I agree, would sell for ten still, but that's an exception. You know, there's very few prints in existence, and it's Hitchcock. It is very complicated and time-consuming and cumbersome to project thirty-five millimeter print. At home. Yes. It used to be called a rich man's hobby because you needed a lot of money to set up a booth and a screen and amplifiers. And, you know, 16 millimeters all in a box, basically. It was made for schools and things, so it's all right there. 35, you have to kind of assemble it all. And it's money. Now, now of course, it's not quite the same because when digital came along, the theaters dumped all their 35 millimeter equipment, so there's just tons of it on the market now. You can pick it up for a very low sum. But you still have to install it and have room for it. It takes up a lot of room. It stinks up. The housewives tend not to like it very much. It's a very male hobby. And, uh, you know, I used to tell collectors, if you want to get a divorce, start collecting 35 millimeter. Do 35 collectors look down on 16 collectors? Yeah, <laughs> they did. I don't know much they do anymore. There aren't that many of them left. But they used to, yes, I think so. Well, ironically, 16 millimeter was by far the most popular of the two formats for, for most of the, you know... At least 10 times as much, I would say, yeah. You sold... Far more 16 millimeter prints. Sure, because everybody had a 16 millimeter projector. They churches had them, schools had them, hospitals had them, and they were all over the place. So it was easy to get 16 millimeter, but it still is, I would assume. Uh, and there were just tons of 16 millimeter prints because every, t- every t- TV station ran 16 millimeter until they went to video. So there were just hundreds and hundreds of most of these prints made. You know, uh, Casablanca, there's probably, you know, several thousand prints made just in this country alone in 16 millimeter. And the irony is that a lot of these prints are still out there. I mean, uh, although the the decay of the films to vinegar syndrome and fading is accelerating, so so you know we're we're losing a lot of them just to neglect to the the inherent qualities of film that it continues to to essentially develop um, yeah. until it breaks down. 
the film itself, which is what causes vinegar syndrome. And that will happen to all acetate films sooner or later. It's just a question of how long it takes, basically. Yeah. So there's still tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of prints out there, but they're, they're just not moving around. They're just sort of sitting there. You know, one of the, the most poignant interviews we did was with, um, Peter? Uh, no, well, yeah, Peter, but Ronnie James. I was oh, thinking. Ronnie, yeah. yeah. Ronnie is, is featured in the um, Theory of Creative Destruction chapter, and he has what is probably the largest private collection of rare TV prints. You know, this, this prints of, of old TV episodes, rare kinescopes, things like that. And and it is a truly remarkable archive of, uh, you know, you really want to say invaluable from a cultural he has things perspective. That are, he has many things that are one of a kind that don't exist except in his collection. I would say that's true. Yeah. A lot of stuff. But he's incredibly depressed. He feels that the collection is, is as he puts it, a dead collection, that it has no more value. Um, he used to support himself for many years by licensing footage. Now the phone never rings. And he sits there sort of day by day depressed in his Orange County home with, you know, his 20,000 reels of film baking away in the garage and all over the house. And, and he doesn't have kids. And when he goes, what is going to happen to that collection? It will get scattered to the winds or thrown away. That's another possibility, too. Whoever gets the house won't know what it is and will toss it. It happens. So that's a prime example of, of something that is, that is really an amazing cultural resource. Somebody, some archive, some library should come in and, and make arrangements. We've actually tried to negotiate that, and and it's very difficult. You know, he's a very hard guy to deal with. He's put his entire life into assembling this collection, and he doesn't want to let it go. And he, wants, he wants someone to write him a decent-sized check, and it's just not right. going to happen, basically. Yeah. It's just not. So there, there, is a, there is a very strong emotional connection that the collectors have to their films. I mean, we interviewed Peter Dyke, who's, who's profiled in the House of Clocks chapter, who lives in Inglewood here in L.A., and he still refers to the two Ivy Tech prints of Star Wars that he once owned in the present tense, and he calls them my Ivy Tech prints of Star Wars. Mine is this possessive. Even though he doesn't have them anymore, mind you. He does not have them. Yeah. They're still his prints. Yeah. So the collectors felt that owning a really rare, valuable film made them part of, of the film, made them special, and made them part of the, the movie-making process in a very strange way. Up until home video, if you wanted to see any movie, not just Castle Black or Wizard of Oz, any beat title, any any movie, you either had to have a print, or it was on TV, or revival theater. That was it. There were there were no options. There was no Betamax. There was no VHS. There was nothing. And that is kind of hard to picture in a world where everything is available almost, you know, by streaming or downloading or whatever. I love the stories that you tell in the book where people make discoveries of things like you know the the footage of king kong or or just like one guy has a particular print that nobody else can find you know you kind of mentioned that before with one of the collectors and those are the moments where i'm just like oh my gosh this stuff is still out there this is amazing well Wes shank who was responsible for finding the four minutes of missing footage from king kong that, that's an amazing story it happened in the either the late 1960s or early 19. 19- 70s, and he was selling trailers at the time, and he was contacted by a fairly well-known dealer who said, you know, I have some rare footage from King Kong, and I'd like to, would you be interested in trading it for some of the trailers you have? And Wes kind of shrugged and said, you know, I, I already have a really good friend of King Kong. Why do I need another print or extra for footage? So he ignored it. And then a couple months later, he gets the knock, the knock on the door one morning. It's a, it's a UPS delivery guy with a package from this other dealer. And Wes said, I didn't order anything from him. And he opens it up. And in it is a small reel of film and a little note that says, here's the footage from King Kong that I mentioned. And if you like it, send me these trailers. And ironically, one of them was for King Kong versus Godzilla. So Wes took it downstairs and he put it on the rewind and he starts going through it and, and almost immediately realizes what it is. And it was from an original nitrate 35 millimeter print of the film before it was censored in the late 1930s. And, and I think when they censored it, they cut that footage out of the negative. Yeah, it, was, it came out of a projection. Yeah, it was footage that somebody had cut out of a print. Right. Yeah. And, and in Wes's case, he actually essentially gave it for free to RKO. Yeah, but it was 20 years later. 
mind you. He, he waited 20 or some odd years because he was terrified of the FBI and the film bus. But he finally did decide to give it to, he'd give it to, I believe, MGM or Turner, or, I think he went to Turner, I think, or whoever controlled the FBI. Turner at that point. Yeah, but in the event, yeah, he gave it to them more or less for nothing at that point. He did. And I asked him, I said, you know, uh, why didn't you hold out? Why didn't you ask for, you know, 20,000, 50,000? I mean, what kind of price do you put on four minutes of footage from King Kong? And he said, you know, to be honest, I just wanted other people to be able to see it. And I think he was, he was being very, you know, very truthful there. I think it was, it was kind of altruistic. It was like, I, you know, I didn't make the movie. It's not up to me to decide whether, you know, other people can or can't see this missing footage. It belongs to all the fans of the film. That said, you know, um, there's, a, there's a rumor. I don't know if you talk about it in the book, about the missing stereo tracks from House of Wax. Well, that thing I was mentioning earlier about a collector who asked them the Warner Brothers wanted it, but it was, was the stereo track House of Wax. House of Wax was the first stereophonic anything that most people ever heard because stereo music records weren't out at that point. Cinerama was out in stereo, but most people never saw Cinerama because they only played big cities. And, you know, uh, Disney had done Fantasia in stereo, but I only played one or two theaters that way. So most people had never heard stereophonic anything until House of Wax. And House of Wax played everywhere in stereo. Hundreds of theaters ran, hooked up equipment and ran it in stereo. And yet those stereo tracks have vanished. They no longer exist. Unfortunately, the, the first movie that ever came out that most people saw in stereo no longer exists in stereo. It only exists in mono. But there's a collector who claims to have the stereo tracks. And whether he has it or not, I tended to doubt. But then someone I knew actually heard them. He said they were stereo. So maybe he does. But he never popped up. It's been 25, 30 years I've been talking to this guy. Well, and, and again, there's a reason for collectors to be paranoid. There was a, a, a very well-known kind of infamous case of a collector in the L.A. area who's still alive and who refused to talk to us. I, I got him on the phone for about a minute, and then he, he hung up on me, who had found missing footage from the Judy Garland version of The Star is Born. And it essentially has been, Jeff, you know the story a little better than I do. Well, I mean, Ron never restored it from footage he found at Warner Brothers, but he wasn't able to restore all of it. And they covered that with stills in the restored version. But there is supposedly is a collector who has two mag prints of the long version of Star is Born. But this has been since the late 80s he's been talking about this. I don't know. I'm talking about the other footage that was, remember, he found in the dumpster... And then, so, so there was footage from Star is Born that was... Oh, he's about the footage that, 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 uh, he, uh, there was Ron Haver. So Ron Haver, oh, Ron Haver, okay, yeah. That was Ray Harlan, yeah. He is still alive, I guess. He's in his late 80s or 90s. He's the guy, the, the missing numbers of Star is Born out of the trash can at Warner's took them home. Right, so they've been thrown out. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So he took them home, and then word got out that he had these missing numbers, and, uh... Ron Haver sick the FBI on him is what happened. Yeah, so we don't know if that's 100% true, but Ron Haver was formerly head of film programming at the L.A. County Museum of Art, and he famously restored that version of A Star is Born. And the story goes that that he and the people working on the restoration had found out that this collector had the footage. They tried to convince him to give it up, and he wouldn't. So somebody contacted the FBI and essentially came and they they arrested uh, him and seized the footage. You know, again, that's another example of why collectors are paranoid. The story that you tell in the book about Mike Hyatt and his quest with uh, Day of the Triffids is just amazing. The whole idea of him picking out all those flecks of dirt from the print and just it really kind of captures the whole idea of the obsessiveness of some folks when it comes to what they are going to do for a movie. Indeed. I don't think anybody can top Mike with Day of the Triffids. No, that's really unique in the collecting world that he has been so passionately focused on that one movie for so long. He fell in love with it as a child, and, and it has stayed with him for all these years. And now he has spent, by his own admission, what close to half a million dollars of his own money to buy the rights and to restore it frame by frame. And, and he will never be done with it. Yeah, he's still not done with it, in fact. No, yeah, he'll, he'll, I, I predict that he will never finish with it, because he can't. Because, because it, it, it's sort of his reason for being. At first, he was going to improve the visual effects, and then it was, I have to restore the film. And So I think there will always be something to tinker with on Day of the Trip. You know, 
we both know Mike very well. Um, he's a friend of both of us and, and we admire him as much as we are all, you know, we are also kind of amazed and astounded at the singularity of his obsession with Day of the Trippets, which I like. I think it's a great film, but I don't think I could devote 30 or 40 years of my life to it or to, or to any movie, to be honest. When it comes to the whole idea of digitization and preservation, restoring the films, is that ultimately, do you guys see that as a victory for the film, or do you see it as a loss to the world that this is now preserved in one format and people might forget about the other formats? Well, I think it's worse than that. I think that as we switch to digital projection, which we've more or less switched to now, there's going to be all sorts of features, TV shows, shorts, trailers, cartoons, that never get digitized, or if they do get digitized, will be done badly, because there's no real money to be made doing them correctly. And so there's going to be a large amount of film that technically won't be lost, because it's sitting on a shelf in a studio, so there it is, it's not lost. But it won't be any format anybody can run, because nobody can be able to run 35mm except museums and the Egyptians, and no one's going to spend the money to digitize it. So technically they won't be lost films, but they won't be seeable films. And I think that's going to happen quite a bit over the next few decades. The other issue is that, and I run a film distribution company, so, you know, I've been involved with restoring films. We recently scanned and restored a, a lost Japanese psychedelic anime from 1973 called Belladonna Sadness, and we brought in the original negative, scanned it in 4K, restored eight minutes of missing footage, but it now exists only in the digital realm. And the way that they store films digitally for archival purposes now is on LTO tape, which means linear tape open. But the problem there is that every couple of years, they keep changing the standards. So you you have to migrate or transfer your previous LTO tapes to the new standard. So there's LTO 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. And at a certain point, the machines no longer become backwards compatible. I think they're they're backwards compatible, like two, two generations. But if you, if you're now working on, say, like LTO five or six, those machines are not going to read the LTO one or two tapes. Uh, you know, something again that Ronnie James talks about is the theory of creative destruction is that, that technology keeps accelerating at an advanced pace. And so film, 35 millimeter film is still by far the most stable medium for long-term storage. Well, not only that, I mean, I can pick up a hundred-year-old piece of film now and look at it on a projector, and I can correct even with a magnifying glass and a light, and I can see what the image is. Try taking a floppy disk from a few years ago and playing it. I mean, try any digital system from just a few years ago, and it won't necessarily play. And within a few, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, will anybody be able to play any of these DCPs that they have? Who knows? The standard will have changed. Almost certainly. It always changes. Whereas film is film. Yeah, and that's, and that's what was so wonderful about that film. And a number of the collectors talked about that, that, that tactile sensation of running their hands over a 35-millimeter print or holding it up to the light, the, you know, the smell of it. 35-millimeter was a, you know, and 16-millimeter, all film formats, or, you know, essentially, you know, very simple to handle and to project once you've got the hang of it. So that's what I'm concerned about with the profusion and proliferation of digital formats. Um, and it's a world that I'm in, you know, involved with in, in restoration and distribution as well. Um, well, you have to. I mean, if you want your movie to be seen in regular theaters, you have to digitize. Period. Yeah. But, but you know, in a, in a way that that battle is over. I mean, digital yeah. digital is king. Film is, film is dying we're down to a few hundred theaters in the United States that can run film on a reel-to-reel base, probably a lot less than that, I suspect. Uh, and, and that have projectionists that are qualified to run older prints, and, I mean, it's just, it's probably, what, less than 40 or 50 places in the whole country that are even qualified to do that anymore, I would think. Maybe less than that. It's basically dead. You've mentioned now, uh, both of you guys have mentioned the smell of 35mm film. <laughs> what does it smell like? Well, there's a chemical smell because it comes out of a processor, for one thing, but as film, Acetate film, which is the most safety film pre-1988 or so, as it deteriorates, it deteriorates the acidic acid. You can smell the acetate decomposing to acidic acid, which is vinegar. So that's why film tends to have a vinegar syndrome. And also, various chemicals are put on films over the years to clean them and whatnot. Those stink. Yeah, film tends to have an odor of one sort or another. It just does, especially as it decomposes. And nitrate has its own smell. Yeah, right. 
as well. Nitrate smells like mothballs, kind of. But one of the things you'd always notice when when I came up to the clip joint, which was Ken Kramer's office, museum, screening room in Burbank, which was one of really maybe the most remarkable little, I call it sort of temples of movie love here in Los Angeles or maybe anywhere, is as you approached the door, you would get this very palpable smell of oil and vinegar, and that was from all of the film prints that he had stacked up all over the place. Sinalicious, you guys are bringing out private property, correct? Yes, I mean, that that actually is, most of the credit for that really goes to UCLA Film and Television Archive, who rediscovered the only existing film elements on that several years ago, a 35mm Duke negative that was made, and David Marriott, who is a director of uh, acquisitions and distribution for Sinalicious Picks now, had seen it at UCLA and thought it was really remarkable, and we made a deal with UCLA to license it and then scan the the Duke negative, which is the earliest surviving materials now, and then do a, a 4K digital restoration. So that's an example of you can do a, a photochemical restoration, but at a certain point, there's only so much that you can do photochemically. There are so many more tools and things that you can do now to restore a film digitally, especially when you're talking about 2K or 4K, to remove scratches, lines, reduce grain, increase grain. In the case of Belladonna of Sadness, there was eight minutes of footage that had been cut out of the negative, and we discovered that there was one surviving 35-millimeter print of the original long version of the film at the Belgian National Film Archive, and they were kind enough to scan just that eight minutes of footage in 4K for us. That was not quite as high of a resolution as the material from the original camera negative, but it was still very, very good. And digitally, you could incorporate it so that it's really seamless now. You would, you would have to be a real expert to see the material that was camera negative versus from the 35 millimeter print. You know, digital is amazing. We're not film-only Luddite by, by no, any means. Especially when it comes to things like 3D digital is spectacular for that. Yeah. Much easier. So digitalized displays, I, I just, I'm, I'm lamenting the fact that there's so much film that's going to be lost, and so many images are going to be lost over the next few decades. Yeah, there's still so many of these records that have never made right. it to CD, much less MP3 or any other sort of better format. It just feels, yeah, we're just losing something constantly as we go from format to format. Black and white to color, nitrate to safety, we lost a bunch of stuff, and now we're going to lose a bunch of stuff from analog to digital, but... I think it's just the way it is. I don't think there's much to be done about it except save what we can save. Yeah, I just moved my record collection. I, I just moved in with my uh, my girlfriend, my partner, and had to move about between eight and 10,000 LPs and 45s, and God bless her. <laughs> She's so patient. She's still with you, eh? <laughs> we have an entire wall of vinyl now. But I, I feel the same thing when you discover some obscure Northern Soul or Funk 45 or, you know, 60s garage band record or even some private press bit of weirdness that you've never heard before, that's what's really oh. remarkable. And I think the film collectors have that same feeling of discovering something. When it came to you, Jeff, did you have a, uh, a a white whale? Did you have something that you were always looking for? Well, I mean, I was a trailer archive back when we had the company, and I think the, the most I ever paid for a trailer was probably 500 bucks for the original Citizen Kane trailer. It had already been loaned to Turner, so they have a digital of it. But everything that exists on that trailer came from that 35-millimeter nitrate. So I wouldn't call it a white whale, necessarily. To me, the white whales were the Laurel Hardy trailers, which were just so hard to find, especially for the short subjects, which they made. And we've only found one so far for Bohunks, but mostly they're gone. Yeah, there's so much ephemera, and I, I, I feel bad calling it ephemera because it makes it, it kind of belittles it. I always love when I come across 45s of radio ads for movies, and it just, pe- people forget about things that these even existed, or the idea of having a trailer for a short film or trailers for older films, just it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. I'll give you one. Back in the 60s and 70s, uh, they used to make, well, they still make production shorts, these eight or nine, ten minute shorts about the making of the movie behind the scenes. And mostly they would run these things after the movie of the week type thing on the network where they had 10 or 15 minutes to fill. So they'd fill it with one of these 10-minute shorts. And there were hundreds of them made. I tracked down one of the producers who had owned the company. And he told me that not only did I have a list of the ones they made, they threw out all their outs and trims, all the interviews they did with movie stars. They just threw them out over the years because they didn't think anybody cared. 
the notion of film preservation has only come about really in the past 30 or 35 years for the film studios, maybe even... I think MGM longer than that. Mayor at MGM was doing stuff in the 60s. But MGM was, and Disney were the only two studios doing it, though. Right. MGM and, and Disney kind of were kept to this sort of stuff a long time ago. Especially Disney, because they were reissuing stuff every few years, and they kind of had to have a good archive. But the other studios mostly weren't doing much of anything until the uh, 60s or 70s. Well, and, and 20th Century Fox notoriously had, had purged all of their nitrate film materials at one point because they felt that they were unstable and or fired. Danger. All the studios did that at one point or another. Yeah, so... Universal burned all their silent movie negatives. Needs a bunch of these. Yeah, or, or, the, or Warner Brothers was, was it with the two-color, Technicolor? Well, no, it wasn't Warner Brothers. Uh, when Technicolor went from two-color to three-color, they sent out a memo to all the studios that they would no longer be able to print two-color Technicolor, so unless you print it now, you might as well throw your negatives away. And a lot of the studios did throw their negatives away for two-color. That's why a lot of the two-colors have only existed prints. If it exists at all. So I, a, a good friend of ours, John Kirk, used to work at MGM UA, and he said that before he started there in, I think it was the late 1980s, that they had um, purged their archive of all of the outtakes and trims from the Bond movies and the Pink Panther films. and Most of the studios did. Uh, because they didn't want to keep paying the storage costs. Yeah. And... So when DVDs came in and suddenly bonus features became a big thing, some of the upper executives came to him and he was in charge of the the studio library and said, okay, what have we got on all these movies? And he goes, I've got the paperwork that says you threw all this material out years ago. <laughs> and that continues to happen, especially for orphan films or, you know, maybe an independent producer who only made, you know, a few films and then they didn't pay their lab bill and then it essentially slips through the cracks. So, you know, the, God bless the studios, though, because at least they have had a vested commercial interest in preserving their to be know, clear, though, copyright material. To be clear, though, until television, they really did. I mean, television is what opened up the market to them to start making money from old movies. Until TV, it, they didn't care about old movies really at all, except for things like Gone with the Wind and a few other big titles. It was really it's money that, of course, drives having a conscience. But but now, there, you know, there is a much greater awareness oh, of, sure. of the value of, of preserving films. So the idea of that, the idea of just throwing away all these archival materials, I mean, that that almost physically hurts me to hear that stuff. Do we live in a more nostalgic age? Would I have just not given a rip in the 1950s? Okay, yeah, I don't expect the studios to keep this stuff. I mean, what, what are your guys' thoughts? I think it was a question of Dennis said, the money. They were spending money on storage and not getting any income from it. Well, that, uh, that happened, what we are talking about in MGMUA, that happened in the 1980s. So that was within the past 30 years, the past three decades. Now, it was, you know, pre-DVD, kind of and so they just didn't see that those materials were ever going to have a lot of financial value. And they said, why do we want to keep paying storage bills on these? Let's just well, all, all the outtakes at MGM, all those musical number outtakes that show up on DVDs and on TCM, all those were ordered destroyed by the president of MGM at one point in the 70s, I believe this was. I can't remember that fellow's name now, but he took all this stuff home, essentially, rather than throw it out. And then when the regime changed at MGM, he brought all this stuff back. So it didn't get tossed. He just told them he tossed it. But that's why all those outtakes exist, because somebody took them home briefly. The sad thing is that there still has been no kind of mending of fences between the studios and archives and, and film collectors and film dealers. You know, I talked to a number of people at the archives who still, to this day, you know, have a very negative uh, opinion of film collectors in, in general. And you would think that now, you know, when it's really just about preserving as much material as possible, that they would sort of, you know, open their arms to them. But there's, there's still a lot of mistrust, and that means that, that some truly remarkable private collections are um, are really imperiled and that are kind of dangling in the wind. And, and hopefully if there's one thing that, you know, besides shining a light on the remarkable obsessions of these collectors, if it gets people more focused um, on the dangers to these private collections, that, that will have been a very positive impact of the book. Dennis, I know you've been involved with films for so many years. Were you ever a collector? No. <laughs> no I was never a film collector. I, once or twice, I would see a print on one of Jeff's lists, and 
you know, for half a minute I thought about buying it, and usually it was gone by the time. No, I'm I'm a heavy duty record collector, movie posters and DVDs and Blu-rays. But thankfully, I never got into film collecting. It does take up an enormous amount of space, and you have to have the equipment to project it. You know, a number of the collections we talk to now no longer even have 16 or 35 millimeter projectors, and, but they they still can't emotionally get rid of their prints. Like Bob Osborne of, of Turner Classic Movies fame, he said he hasn't projected any of his films in probably 15 or 20 years, and yet emotionally he still can't get rid of the prints because they represent such an important part of his younger life. And so they have such deep sort of powerful meaning to him that he can't let go. I, I would bet, I mean, with record collecting, it's probably the same way. As you run into collectors who don't really use the records anymore, but they have an emotional attachment that they dated Peggy Sue, they played this record, they bought this when something happened. No, that's a terrible thought that you would own a record and not play it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's, that's the horror, the horror. So sorry, so sorry. But that's the thing with a lot of film collectors. Almost everybody we talk to, they just, they no longer screen their prints. You know, even the ones that have remarkable collections, they just don't show them anymore because it's so much easier to watch things on Blu-ray or DVD. Well, or also, and the other thing was that Peter mentioned this too. You used to be able to run a movie, and all your neighbors and friends would show up because you're running some movie that they can't see any other way. Now, if you want to watch the Wizard of Oz, you buy the Blu-ray Wizard of Oz and you watch it. You know, yeah. uh, it's, it's just not that big a deal. Whereas it used to be thirty odd years ago plus, you could invite all your friends and family over, and it was a big deal to see some old movie on a big screen in someone's house. It isn't anymore at all. Realistically, like a you know, uh, I think with Severin Films, um, David Gregory's company just put out a beautiful restored Blu-ray of two of Robert Steele's best movies, Italian Gothic from the '60s, Castle of Blood and Nightmare Castle. And and to be honest, you're you're never going to find a 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter print of those films that's really going to look as good as that Blu-ray. There were doofy 16-millimeter prints circulating for years, I know, and I, I showed one once at the American Cinematheque and had Barbara there, and that was the best we could find. Now you can get a really beautiful Blu-ray of those movies, and it's a great thing. And the fact is that a good Blu-ray projected can look almost as good or best, not better than 35-millimeter. I mean, I've seen the Blu-ray spectacular. They just do. I hate to say it, but it's true. The whole idea of what you have and, and who you go to and all these things, it seemed like it was a very surreptitious kind of process in the day. And, and there was even the, the newsletters and these things. Today, is that still the case or is it just like, okay, I'll go to eBay and see what's selling? Well, I mean, the, the big reel was the main way people bought and sold films. And it's been out of business now for, what, 12, 13 years, something like that. Yeah, uh, eBay exists for 16 millimeter to a point. Uh, a lot of collectors that are older won't use eBay. And, and eBay doesn't really allow 35 features, so there's still an underground market for that. But again, it's a very small market at this point. I mean, it just isn't that many people buying or selling. I think when Sabuket closed, no one took our place buying large collections and selling them out like we were doing. The best of my knowledge, really no one's doing that anymore. That's funny to hear that they're, they don't allow the 35 millimeter sales. And my God, I don't know if it's still true, because I talked to an attorney there like 10 plus years ago, but the attorney I spoke to at eBay used to work for Disney. He was convinced that 35 millimeter was copyrighted and 16 wasn't, which makes no sense at all. It's the same movie either way. But that's what he was convinced of, and that's the rule he set up at eBay. There are still all sorts of copyrighted things up on YouTube all the time. It amazes me the studios don't go after people on YouTube, but they don't. Oh, yeah, YouTube is, is without a doubt the biggest copyright violator in, in the history of copyright I think that's right, yeah. Violation. I used to, I mean, I still do, would police it at least once a week to find pirated or bootleg copies of movies that, that Sinalicious had licensed and, and spent a lot of money to restore in, in really good versions. And then somebody would put really a horrible sixth generation doofy version. Or your Blu-ray up. Or your Blu-ray. <laughs> Actually, all the time they would put a movie up from our Blu-ray with our logo on it. And yeah. I was like, oh my God. And then YouTube would be selling ads yep. on that. So they're actually making money off of that pirated material. No, it's, it's amazing. The, the world of the 70s when the FBI and Justice Department were going after film collectors and now you've got, you know, one of the biggest and most influential websites in the world is... A copyright infringement. Oh my god, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the biggest pirate of all time. I think there's no question. You could take all of the film pirates to, you know, lump them together. Yeah, one day of YouTube. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. So who is putting out the book? University Press of Mississippi. And we were very fortunate that they took a chance with it because we had approached 
a few other publishers who were really interested in the subject matter, but they said, well, how many film collectors are there out there? The first thought is, okay, you know, all the film collectors out there will, will buy a copy and then we can sell X thousands of copies. Jeff and I were like, well, that's the point. <laughs> if there aren't many at all, they're all dying out. And they said, well, why would we want to publish a book about film collecting if the subculture is dying out? And I said, well, that's, I know, but that's the point. So it was kind of a circular conversation. And we, we had essentially finished the manuscript and when we reached out to University Press of Mississippi, and normally people come to them, I think, with a proposal or maybe a chapter, a sample chapter. And so they say, yeah, that sounds very interesting. Can you send us a sample chapter? I said, I can send you, I can send you the manuscript. And they read it very quickly and they sent it out for peer review and all of the reviews, uh, came back very positive. And interestingly, they all sort of began with the same thing. When I heard this was a book about film collecting, I said, wow, how am I ever going to be interested in this? And when I finished the book, I was just really fascinated. Yeah. I had no idea that there was this strange, obsessive underworld uh, that had been targeted by the FBI and the Justice Department and the studios and it kind of worked in the shadows for all these years, sort of in the really the underbelly, kind of a, a shadow version of Hollywood. I have to say I really appreciate the title because I went into the book thinking one thing, and when I finally got to the Thousand Cuts chapter, I realized what you had done, and that was a brilliant, brilliant way of kind of turning things around as far as the play on a thousand cuts. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, Mike McKay, one of the, the projectionist collectors that we interviewed, is the one who, who got a print of Jaws when it was on its first run in 75 and screened it out of his apartment window in New York City for his neighbors. Uh, he was the one who, who made that comment about how his job had essentially, as a projectionist had essentially gone away and it was slow, painful death by a thousand cuts. And I thought that was a great metaphor for... Oh, so many projectionists uh, so yeah. projections that felt that way. Uh, Ron Rocky was another one. I remember yeah. A lot of them might have been Paul for that matter. I mean, you know, there's not that many left. Yeah. Mike, I, I hate to jump off, but I actually need to jump on another conference call about the renovation of the uh, the Egyptian here in the nitrate uh, retrofit. We got a grant from the Film Foundation um, to equip our projection booth here to show nitrate film, and even more obsolete format. So I need to jump on a call about that, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much, guys, for your time today. This has been terrific. Thank you so much.